0: We were just doing, and the songs that we were singing together here as we open the service. But what about the rest of the week? And even when we are singing together, what are we singing about God or even to God? In the past, we've talked about when we've talked about prayer, uh, there are helpful acrostics like Acts where we remember words like adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, or asking God for things. And then when we were looking at Ephesians 5, as we were finishing up that book, we talked about this idea of the, the songs and hymns and uh, psalms and all of these things that we're singing ought to both reflect the sorts of things that we see throughout the Bible. They ought to reflect the whole of who God is and what he does, And so as we take those ideas together, I think that we should evaluate what percentage of our prayers during the week are praising God for who He is and what He's done, as opposed to simply asking God for things that we want. Now, certainly we should ask God for things that we want. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but so often our prayers are geared toward God, will you do this? God, will you give me this? And often we do not do enough of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, but specifically this morning, adoration. And so as we look at Exodus 15 this morning, do you and I adore and praise God as we should? Does our adoration and praise give people the proper picture of God? Or do we only praise God or think about the things that are easier to think about? These Ideas in this passage are set in the context of God's wrath, which tends to be an uncomfortable topic for us to think about, and yet that's the context that surrounds this praise to God, and so I think there's value in us looking at this together. And so what I want us to see from Exodus 15 is that we should sing to the Lord for his works and for his ways, who he is. And so first of all, we should sing to God for his works. I think we see from this passage that God's works demand praise. Uh, Verse 19 kind of summarized what happened there in chapter 14. You could also look, for example, at Exodus 14, 26 through 31, and this sums up God's work. Verse 30 said, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. What is the response? Verse 31, the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. And then what's the next thing in this chapter? It doesn't say exactly how much time passes, but in fairly short order, they move from seeing God's great deliverance to singing to God and praising him for what he had done. So, that's the context. God's works demand praise, but God's works also include His judgment on sinners. And this is where I think we find a gap in so many of the things that we encounter today, right? If you were to listen to, um, you know, Christian radio station, and for that matter, if you were to open most hymnals, there would be a significant lack of songs that express God's majesty in His judgment on the wicked. We'll talk more about maybe some of the reasons for that in a moment. But where do we see it in this song? For example, in chapter 15, verse 1, he says, The horse and its rider he is hurled into the sea. Chapter 15, verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. Then again in verse 5, the deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Verse 10, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. So there's this repetition of very similar phrases that emphasize God's judgment upon the Egyptians. What do we see from this passage? I think we see that sinners are in the wrong; that they are guilty. Why do I say that? Because it says in uh, in, in response to their pride, verse seven. In the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. There are people who look at God's judgment and God's wrath, and there is an emphasis on it that gives people the impression that God is somehow being unfair. So when God goes and has the Israelites to uh, invade the land of the Canaanites, that it's sort of like what happened when people came over from Europe and conquered various areas of North and South America. They're just doing it for the sake of kingdom, for their own glory, without any respect for the indigenous peoples. We need to recognize that what happened in the Old Testament and what happened in the exploration and imperialism of the past three to five hundred years, is not the same thing. Why is it not the same thing? Because in what happens in the coming of the Israelites into the land of Canaan, in God's judgment on the Egyptians, there is a very clear and direct line drawn between pride and immorality and unrepentant wickedness and God's wrath being poured out upon them in terms of the plagues And the destruction by the Israelites of specific groups of people. We'll talk more about that as we continue through the Old Testament, but sinners are in the wrong. The Egyptians were idolaters. The Egyptians worshipped gods that they thought could gain them some form of immortality. The Canaanites were wicked. The Canaanites murdered one another, made human sacrifices committed all sorts of of immorality in praise and worship to their gods and trying to get their gods to give them what they wanted. And so we tend to be sympathetic toward perhaps the Egyptians or the Canaanites, but as this song highlights, they were in the wrong. They opposed God. They raised themselves up in pride, much like Satan, much like kings throughout history. God cast them down. Pharaoh had many opportunities to repent. How many times did Moses and Aaron appear before Pharaoh and say, here's what God wants you to do. And God didn't just give Pharaoh one statement of here's what I want you to do. He did it over and over and over again. And then when they are leaving, Pharaoh says, I'm going to still pursue them even though I've already given my word that they can leave. Pharaoh is in the wrong. The Egyptian army was in the wrong. Sinners make schemes. Look at verse 9. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw my sword, my hand will destroy them. There are echoes of this attitude throughout the rest of the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Proverbs, right? The way of the wicked is, I will carry out my schemes, I will loot and plunder and Seize what I want by my strength when I want it and none can stop me. And in this passage it goes from verse 9, I will do this to verse 10, you blew with your wind the sea covered them they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Man raises himself up in pride against God and God says, no. They deserved God's judgment. They came up with their schemes And yet God's power crushes sinful schemes. Look at verse 7. You send forth your burning anger and it consumes them as chaff. Verse 8. At the blast of your nostrils the waters were piled up. Verse 10. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. God's power crushes sinful schemes. We see this in other places in the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 2, right? The nations conspire and join together and plot how they're going to overthrow God's anointed and God's rule. Or we go further back in the Old Testament to Genesis. They build the Tower of Babel. We will ascend to heaven. We will be like gods ourselves. God confuses their languages. Psalm 2, God crushes the power of the nations. Here in our passage, God destroys the Egyptians. At this point, we're uncertain. We feel like God is being too hard on sinners. These are the, uh, the sort of things that give the Old Testament and the Bible and Christians a bad name. We're supposed to be a people of, 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 of love and tolerance and all those sorts of things. That's the message that many who profess Christianity today would hold out. Whereas even those who are seeking to follow the Bible, seeking to accurately represent God and not just following cultural um, expectations, we still find ourselves to be hesitant with the ideas that are in this passage. This is not just, however, an Old Testament idea. Turn over to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 15 is interesting because in Revelation fifteen three and 4, it says this, They sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. There's a lot of parallels Between what is summarized here in Revelation 15, 3 and 4, and what we see laid out in Exodus 15. Both are referred to as the Song of Moses. Whether we would see this as the second verse or as a summary, or that's not really important. Both of them are called the Song of Moses. Notice what else is the same. What is the context in which this song is sung? Revelation 15, verse 1, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. God's judgment against sin, song of praise to God, who's seen it? Look at verse 2. I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. God's people, whom he has redeemed, whom he has saved, are the ones now singing praise to God in the midst of the larger context of God pouring out his wrath against sin. So there's a lot of parallels between what we see in Revelation 15 and what we see in Exodus 15. Well, but, you know, of course Revelation is end times and apocalyptic and all of those sorts of things. You know, Jesus was mild-mannered and merciful and a, and a, and a kind teacher and all of these sorts of things, right? Remember what Jesus did when he comes into the temple? He is incensed that God's temple is being defiled by stealing and cheating and other violations of God's law. He is filled with righteous anger and he drives all those people out of the temple and says, my father's house is supposed to be a house of worship, a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. My point in highlighting these things for us is this. We cannot pit the Old Testament against the New Testament and say, Old Testament, God of wrath, God of anger, God of judgment. New Testament, God of love, tolerance, and acceptance. You either have to take the whole of the Bible, or you've got to throw the whole of it away. You can't pick and choose. You can't do the Jefferson thing and clip out the parts that you want and, and paste them in and say, here's a moral code to live by, because you can't live that moral code in your own strength. And because if you separate that supposed moral code from the God who gave it, it has no meaning, it has no purpose. It's just another attempt by human beings to live up to God's impossible standard. Think about the context of what we see in Exodus and Revelation, plagues. We've experienced in the last few months what some might call a plague in our country and across the world. COVID-19, coronavirus, it's got a lot of different names depending on who you talk to. And even if you are not convinced of all the numbers, the reality is a lot of people have died and a lot more people have gotten sick, whatever the final counts end up being. I think it would be a mistake for us to say this is a specific plague on a specific country exactly the same as what we see God bringing on the Egyptians. I think it would be as much of a mistake for us to see something like a modern-day plague and act as though we have no responsibility to consider our own lives in light of it, as individuals or as a country. When God sends disasters of various kinds, our tendency is to think it's for those people over there. They need to wake up, they need to repent, and I think God is calling all of us to repent. Think about our country When we look at a passage like Exodus 15, are we the Israelites, or are we the Egyptians as a people? Are we the Canaanites, or are we the Israelites as a people? We like to quote quote, 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people called by my name humble themselves and pray, I will hear, and heal their land. That's the short summary of that. But that promise was not given to the United States. By way of application, God hears those who repent, including people like the people of Nineveh, the nation of Assyria, which was a wicked nation. And so in that, we see God's willingness to forgive any in connection with repentance. Yet... I would argue for you the United States is far more like Egypt or like Canaan than it is like the people of Israel. And I'm not trying to keep harping on the same things, but they don't stop being true whether I say them or not. As a nation, we murder approximately 600,000 babies a year. On average, the last 10 years or so. And many of the people who are arguing for the value of life in connection with coronavirus and the value of life in correction with perceived racism in our country, care nothing about the lives of the unborn, and as such, this is a mark of hypocrisy. To our own shame, and to be fair, the criticism that sometimes we don't care once those babies are born born is sometimes true. We don't always have concern for people who are in situations of their own making or that are forced upon them. And we ought to have more compassion for the plight of those who have no fathers, for the plight of those who um, are immigrants, refugees, whatever words you want to use for those things. But that doesn't mean that just because we haven't done all we should have in the past to help those people that it's okay to kill all of these people. Right? So how are we like the Canaanites and the Egyptians? Widespread child sacrifice. Let's be honest and call it what it is. It's not pro-choice. It's not... um, It it boils down in probably 90% of cases to being an issue of convenience. Children are expensive I have career goals, it's more fun to be unattached. So let's not believe the lies that say these sorts of things are are to save the life of the mother because in very rare cases is something like that necessary, but most of the time it boils down to an issue of convenience and an issue of uh, just people being in difficult situations. And there's a lot of reasons why they're in those situations, but... We as a country are wicked in what we tolerate there. What else do we do? Like I said a moment ago, we do not have significant concern for those who are without fathers or mothers, the orphans, for those who are without husbands, widows as the Bible would define them. There's perhaps by way of application there are those who are uh, single mothers for a variety of reasons and perhaps application of the case of the widow in the Old Testament to that today both political parties look at those groups of people and see in them leverage to accomplish their specific goals to get funding to use them for their own ends and as a nation we don't care about justice for those groups of people We only care about if they vote us in and help us preserve our power. In what other ways are we like the Egyptians and the Canaanites? We are proud and we are greedy. But what do we call it? We call it the American dream. And yes, there is value in hard work. We shouldn't be lazy. We can't just act as though everything should be given to us and if we don't have everything that it's always somebody else's fault I acknowledge all of that but it's also possible for us as a country to be hard-hearted and to live in isolation from the needs of those who are around us and it's easy for us to harp on politicians for doing this and those of them who live in gated communities and have immense wealth and, and are completely disconnected from the people they're supposed to represent, we ought to call them out on that. But we ought to look closer to home and say, I'm greedy too. I know of needs around me too, and I close my eyes to them. And yeah, it's complicated. Because throwing money at it doesn't really fix the problem. And we don't have time to help everyone. But that doesn't mean we don't have time to help anyone. Particularly in connection with people who, who contact our church and those sort of things. But again, how do, we, how do we resolve those things? What else is true about our country that parallels between the Egyptians and the Canaanites and our country? As a nation... We are sexually immoral, but we say love is love or be who you are, and it doesn't matter if that person's already married or if the two of you are not married or if you're the same gender or if you're opposite genders or whatever else. We just say, I want what I want, I'll do what I want, and I'll get what I want, and nobody can tell me it's wrong. You know what's true of the Canaanites? In a goal of achieving community fulfillment... What they wanted their gods to provide them? They acted the same way that we in our country act. What else is true? We're like, oh, idolatry. Yeah, Egyptians worshipped beetles and cats in the Nile River and all that sort of thing. We don't do that kind of thing today. Our idols tend to be shiny red and have fast engines. Our idols tend to be numbers in a digital reckoning. Our idols tend to be the applause of people around us. doesn't mean that we don't have idols. It just means that they're harder to identify because they're not something in the corner of our house or in the village square or in a grove of trees that everybody says that's the place we go worship because we worship them at home by ourselves and no one has to know, Right? but it's not like people don't know. It's not like we don't know if we're honest about it. So when we as Americans encounter a song like the song of Moses, we not not automatically think that we are the ones rejoicing in victory or that the Israelites themselves were the ones singing in victory simply because they deserve God's help. We have many more parallels with the Egyptians we see plagues today. We see disasters. We see catastrophes. And yet, as a country, we do not repent. And I'm, I'm not saying these things to say that all of you are hard-hearted against God and all those sorts of things. I'm just trying to say we automatically see ourselves on the side of the victors, and there are still remnants of the Egyptians and the Canaanites in our hearts that God needs to root out and bring us to repentance about But what makes that change? What makes that difference? Who God is. The second thing we see that from this passage is not just what God does, not just his works, but also his ways, who he is. So we should sing to the Lord for his ways. I think perhaps a key verse that expresses this is in verse 11 Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is God? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. We ought to not only sing to the Lord for his works, but also for his ways. First of all, that God is a strong warrior. 15 verse 1, he is highly exalted. 15 verse 2, he is my strength. 15 verse 3, the Lord is a warrior. God is a strong warrior. As we were reminded in Sunday school this morning, one of the things that was mentioned is that God is faithful to, Keeping of his promises to his people. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at 15 verse 2. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will extol him. Think about how God refers to himself in the Old Testament. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That comes up over and over again. And so when we see a phrase like, This is my God and my Father's God. There is that continuity of God being God, not only for this generation, but for all those generations that came before, and the promises that God made to Abraham, He's still fulfilling to these people here in the book of Exodus. God is the God who revealed Himself. 15.3, the Lord is His name, Yahweh, I am. He fulfills that claim to ultimate deity, I exist. By what he did in the plagues and pouring out his power. Is he the one true God? Is he the self-existent one? Yes. Footnote. See what happened in Egypt. That's what we ought to see here in verse 3. Furthermore, he cares for his people in terms of his fulfilling of his promises. Look at verse 13. In your loving kindness you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength you have guided them to your holy habitation. And then again in verse 17, You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. God is a strong warrior. God is a faithful keeper of promises to his people. God is fearful. When I say fearful, not in fear himself, but promoting fear in others because of his great majesty. We see this, for example, in... Verse 12, with regard to his right hand, you stretched out your right hand. And 15, verse 16, where it says the greatness of your arm, that's God's power which stands behind this promoting of fear in those who see him. And then we see the the response of the peoples to seeing God's power. Anguish gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembling grips them. The inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. They are motionless as stone until your people pass over. God is a God who ought to inspire a proper fear and reverence as we encounter his power and see who he is. And then finally, we see that God is the king. We see this in verse 18. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Why does he deserve to reign? Verse 19, this summary of what he has done for his people and his sovereignty over the Egyptians. God is the only rightful king because all other kings have a, have a temporary lifespan, a short reign. They control limited amounts of territory. You know, the, the, the story is Alexander the Great wept because he had no more worlds to conquer. He didn't come close to conquering the entirety of the, the earth as we know it. Just the part that he was aware of, right? God rules all of it. God is over all of it. And God will reign not for five years or ten years or twenty years as great emperors of the past have tried to do. God will reign for a thousand years in the person of Christ in the millennium. And then for eternity beyond that because God is the king. That is a brief summary of who God is from this psalm. And so what's a proper response, then, to all of these things that we see in this psalm? It's not enough just for Moses to sing this song. It's not enough just for the men of Israel to sing this song. We see this in verses 20 to 21. Miriam, Moses' sister, leads the women of Israel in a kind of chorus, emphasizing once again, verse 21, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he is hurled into the sea. Notice that this is a response, verse 21, Miriam answered them. and The them could be the women, that would be the most immediate thing, that the women say something, and then Miriam answers them. Or that the them is Moses and the men of Israel, and then Miriam answers them, either going back and forth, or repeating the whole psalm. The men sing the song, and now the women of Israel sing the song. But you know what we draw from that, regardless of how you take the specific form of the song. All of God's people are supposed to be singing praise to Him. So let's go back to where we started. Do you sing to the Lord for His works and for His ways? We praise God far too little. We're really good at asking God for stuff. We're really good at being like teenagers and college students, right? No offense to the teenagers and college students, just the stereotype of them, right? Hey, Dad and Mom, I need some money. Dad and Mom, can I use the car? Hey, dad, mom. Hey, can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? And I'm not saying that's always a bad thing, right? There's a measure of dependence between children and their parents and loving parents care for their children and meet their needs and all those sorts of things. But there's also the reality that if children are only ever asking their parents for things and they have no relationship with them beyond that, it's a fairly shallow sort of relationship, even though it's one that we're all stuck in, right? Right? when it comes to our relationship with God, it's very easy for us to be that same way. God, give me this thing. And even if it's a good thing, right? Because we want people to get better. We want people to trust Christ. We want people to repent in our country and ourselves to repent. Uh, we want to thank God for all these things. But if we're only just asking God for stuff all the time, there's, there's basically no asking God for stuff in this song, right? That's my point. We, when we looked at the contentment book on Wednesday night, it asked this question more or less, what if you went a whole day without complaining? What if you approached all of the people that you would normally start out a conversation with and complain about things, and you said, here's something that I'm praising God for? How would that radically transform that day? So I would urge you to a similar challenge in connection with this passage, which is what if you went a whole day without asking God for things. Again, not because it's bad to ask God for things and not because you should never ask Him for things again, but just to sort of break yourself of the habit of only ever asking God for things and almost never praising Him. What would that do? I know it's something that I certainly don't do enough. I think all of us could grow in this area. But what if you don't feel like you can come to God in this way? You feel distant from God. You you feel like you know, church or Christianity or all of these sorts of things maybe for someone else, you feel like, yeah, God did all those things long ago, I don't know if he still does it today. The good news for all of us here in this room today is that we're not the Egyptians in the sense of God's judgment already having fallen. When your chariot is drowned in the Red Sea, there's no more opportunity for repentance. When we die and stand in God's presence, there's no more opportunity for repentance. When Christ returns and gathers His people and the world ends, there's no more opportunity for repentance. But right now, there is an opportunity for repentance. If Pharaoh had turned to God and said, I was wrong and I bow the knee and I acknowledge that you are the one true God, God would have, I believe, spared Pharaoh and spared his army. But he didn't. But you don't have to be Pharaoh. You don't have to be Pharaoh's Pharaoh's chariot driver. You don't have to be those on whom God's judgment falls. You and I can repent even today. The painful truth is that deliverance is always accompanied by destruction. There's always two sides, right? Right? There's the victors and the defeated. Manoah and his family were saved. Everyone else didn't make it through the flood. God's people, the Israelites were saved, but the Egyptians were drowned. God's people will be saved. 2 Thessalonians 1, Revelation 20, many other passages. But those who do not... Ally themselves with God, turn to Christ through His Son. Face God's wrath. And uh, there's things we don't like about that message, right? We want to change it. We want to. We want to make it easier. We want to make it out that God's just friendly toward everybody. God is immensely and 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 vastly loving toward His people. But he demands allegiance. We can't say, God, I want to not face your punishment, and I want to do everything that I want to do. That's not how it works. So what's the way of escape? For the Israelites, it was the impossible path God made for them through the Red Sea. For us, it is Jesus Christ, the one and only way to God, who bridges the impossible gap between us and between God himself. And so the starting point for praising God in this way is to turn from our sin, trust in Jesus only, and find God's deliverance even as the Israelites did. And if you've already done that, then you can truly know God's works and His ways, and you ought to sing and praise Him of those things in prayer and in music and in all of these ways regularly and consistently and far more often than we tend to do. Let's pray. Lord, help us to sing to you and to pray to you of your works and of your ways because you deserve our praise. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.